Yes, the reading this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, you'll find that on page 1203 of the Church Bibles, 1203. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, good morning. It's very good to see you. And um, before we begin, it's worth saying that this morning we're going to do something slightly different. Um, we are um, we normally here at St. Mary's, we work through the Bible. We believe God speaks in the Bible. And so we work through passages of Scripture week by week. But we're taking a pause these last three weeks to think about the Reformation and its impact on us today. Uh, the Reformation, you might have heard, um, is uh, coming up to its 500th year anniversary uh, at the end of October. And so we're thinking about um, some of its themes and uh, what was it all about. And um, it's worth just saying that this um, is more towards a kind of lecture end uh, rather than the normal sermon that we get week by week. And uh, this morning we're going to be thinking about the church, how the Reformation affected the church. Um, So as we begin, I want to ask you to come on a journey with me. I want you to imagine that you're in 15th century England. You're in a church service in the 1400s, and you're not on comfy seats like this. Um, Some of you might not think they're that comfy, but they are comfy compared to what you would have been doing. You would have been praying on your knees for the whole service behind one of these, a rude screen. So you just imagine your head down um, on your knees. And behind the other side of the screen is the clergy, And they would be performing the mass. They'd be offering the bread and the wine on the altar. You can uh, see it there. And uh, you wouldn't be getting anywhere near the clergy. You wouldn't um, really speak to them. But you would hear them reciting the Latin mass. And um, you would have a sneak preview through one of these. Now, here's your first bit of trivia, Reformation trivia. Um, These are called squints. Isn't that cool? Um, So it's where a word for squint comes from. And um, people would look through those at the clergy as they recited uh, the Latin Mass. So um, you're in church um, and you're on your knees. And there's a point, I mean, you don't understand the Latin Mass, but there's a point in which in the service everything goes a bit quiet, a bell rings. It's the point in which people believe the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus. And everyone lifts up their arms in worship. It's a spectacular thing to to be part of, I imagine. It's a bit of a terrifying thing um, in lots of ways. But it's a special service because it's Easter, and it's the one time in the year you personally receive communion. Um, You don't receive the Holy Communion, um, you're not able to receive the wine, but you do receive the bread. And so on your knees, a towel is, is laid out in front of you because people thought that it was the literal body of Jesus. They didn't want any falling on the floor. And um, 
the priest comes along and they place the bread in your mouth. You can't get anywhere near it. You can't even touch the vessels that it's held on. And then someone else comes along and flushes down your throat uh, unconsecrated wine, normal wine, to kind of flush away any residue, any sort of fragments of Christ's body. Now, it might be your very first time here at St. Mary's, but I guess you've already picked up that we don't do things quite like that here at St. Mary's. Um, we don't have screens, and um, we, don't have, uh, we are celebrating communion, but we don't believe um, in those uh, things I've described there. But the question I've got for us this morning is, why not? Uh, is it kind of just fashions have changed, the times have changed? Is it that we've become kind of less reverent towards God, that we kind of be more suspicious of miracles, like things changing? Or is it something else? Well, I want us to see this morning that these changes to the way church is done, is not, they're not accidents of history, but they come from a shift in our understanding of God, our understanding of what Jesus Christ achieved in his death and resurrection. So what I want us to do this morning is to think, what was that shift in understanding? That's our first point. And then I want us to think, how did that spill out into church life? And then finally, our smallest point at the end, we're going to think about how that matters to us today. But first of all then, how did this belief change? Well, our story, as it's done for the last couple of weeks, starts with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk in Wittenberg in Germany, and he was a guy who was plagued with doubts. He just thought that he couldn't be right with God. The more he tried to love God, the more he found that he actually hated God. And in lots of ways, Martin Luther was a real product of the medieval world that he found himself in. Uh, In the medieval world, the big question on everyone's lips was, how do we get right with God? Death was very much a part of everyday life, and people were very conscious that any moment they could appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so they asked this question, how do we get right with God? Now, I realize for us, that's kind of hard to get our heads around because I think our culture kind of assumes that we are right with God already, that if God exists, that he'll kind of love me because, after all, I'm me. But in the medieval world, it was the other way around. See, they got one thing right. They knew that God was holy, that his eyes could not look upon sin. And so as they thought about their own lives, they realized that they were not right with God. There was a huge chasm between God and his holiness and the people in their sinfulness. And the question is, how do we bridge that chasm? Now, the answer the church had at that time was grace. Now, that might surprise you if you're a Protestant and um, you might think that grace is a kind of Protestant word, but actually grace was spoken about in the church at that time. Um, and I want us to, you know, this bit's going to get a little bit technical, but stay with me because it's, um, it's, worth, it's worth hearing, I hope. But um, we're going to think a bit about what, how did they understand grace at that time. But first of all, I want to define what we actually mean by grace. Now, grace means undeserved favor. It's showing not just mercy, not just forgiveness, but undeserved favor to someone. I'm not a massive fan of musicals, um, but one of the musicals I did enjoy was Les Miserables, probably because it's a bit gritty and a bit depressing. Um, it kind of suits my personality. But um, one of the, I haven't seen it for a while, but I, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that right at the beginning, 
Um, Jean Valjean, he's um, in prison, and uh, he's released from prison, but he's on the streets. He's got no hopes. Uh, but a priest has mercy on him. He takes him into his home. He feeds him. And after dinner, John Valjean sees an opportunity to get rich quick. He sees the priest's silverware, and he puts it in a bag, and he runs off. Uh, a policeman catches up with John Valjean. He suspects he's stolen it. He marches him back to the priest's house. And we're expecting the priest to kind of hand him over to the, the police. But the priest says, no, I gave it to him. It's a dramatic point in the story. The the priest um, gets John Valjean off the charge. But he doesn't just show mercy. He doesn't just forgive him. See, if he forgave him, he would just say, okay, you know, give me the silverware back. I'll say nothing more about it. You're forgiven. He doesn't just do that. But he shows grace. He gives John Valjean the, the silverware that he stole. He did not deserve it. And you'll know from the film and the play that that gets John Valjean's life back on track. See, we all need that type of grace from God. See, the Bible tells us that we're not right with God, but we need God to show us undeserved favor to us. And the big question is, how do we do that? How do we receive that grace? And the view at the time in the medieval church was that we work towards it. Uh, There was a phrase that went round at that time. It was, you try your best, and God will do the rest. People had a kind of coffee view of grace. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, When I get up in the morning, I don't know about you, but I'm just a bit of a mess. I I try and get up before the kids to try and do a few things around the house, and everything is very, very slow. It's always a, a massive effort. But the moment I have a coffee, the whole thing becomes a lot easier. I'm perked up, and I'm, I'm ready to go. It kind of transforms me. And people kind of had that view of God's grace, that yes, we need God's grace, but we kind of try a little bit, and God kind of perks us up with his grace. Now, the problem is, is with that is that isn't really grace. It isn't really grace. It's not kind of like John Valjean receiving the, the silverware from the priest, because there's something we are doing ourselves. We're contributing towards God's grace towards us. And I want us to see that that isn't an idea we find in the Bible. So have a look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me, and uh, we'll just see this. It's on page 1174. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, I'll read it. Um, For it is by grace, there's our word, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you see how the, uh, Paul, the guy writing this letter, describes grace? He says it is a gift. And you know that when you receive a gift, the response is not to put your hand in your pocket and say, okay, how much do I owe you? But it's to say thank you. It's to just receive it with empty hands. Now, you might be sitting here and you think to yourself, why is that a problem? You might think, is this not just the thing that theologians kind of love discussing, but actually it really doesn't have much impact on my life? Well, I want to tell you that it is a huge problem because it dramatically changes your understanding of God. See, if you think that God kind of infuses you with grace like the coffee and supports your own efforts, then you don't end up loving God for who he is. 
You end up loving God for what He can give you. God becomes a kind of transaction machine where He dispenses grace as you put forward your efforts. But if grace is a gift, then we don't love God for what He can give us. We love God knowing that we've already been loved. We love God for who He is and how wonderful uh, His love towards us is. See, that truth um, dramatically changed the church. And I wonder if it's something that lots of us misunderstand even today. Um, I wasn't a Christian until I was 21 and uh, wasn't really interested in it. And one of the reasons I wasn't a Christian is because I thought that Christianity was like I described, a kind of you try, a bit, uh, you try and live uh, in a particular way and God might reward you. And to be honest, that kind of God didn't seem very attractive to me. But actually, as I read the Bible and people shared it with me, I realized that that is not biblical Christianity. That actually, in this message is the truth that Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, has done everything needed. He showed his undeserved favor towards me. And when I looked at that truth, I thought, that is a God I want to know myself. That's the truth that was... um, That's the belief that changed. I want us to press on. We could say much more about that. I'd love to talk about that for the whole time. But I want us to press on because I've been asked to talk about how it changed the church. So we're going to look at that area. Um, I want us to think um, about how that belief kind of changed the church. Uh, Because the whole church, I think, was built on this kind of system of dispensing grace. Uh, The church was a kind of service in which God would would give out the kind of coffee grace uh, to people. And I want us to see that how that belief changed the church in three uh, different areas. It changed it in the service of communion, it's changed it in the priesthood, and it's changed it in the Bible. And we're going to look at three of those, um, those three things very briefly. First of all, then, the, the communion service. In lots of ways, the, the church was the communion. I mean, that was done every day, and people would go to look on the, the, the bread and the wine, which they thought had changed into Jesus' body and blood. And the Mass was understood, the, the, the communion service was understood to be an offering to God. It was done on an altar, and people thought that they were repeatedly offering Jesus' body and blood to God. Now, there's huge problems with that. Um, before we look at those problems, I just want to give you another bit of trivia, though. Um, the moment in which the priests would um, pray over the bread... Um, they would say these words in Latin. They would say, hoc es corpus mem, uh, which if you say very quickly, sounds a bit like, um, I'll say it again, hoc es corpus mem, hocus, hocus, hocus pocus. That's, a kind, of, that's kind of where our, um, a lot of people think that's where the term hocus pocus came from. And it's appropriate, isn't it? There was a kind of, kind of magic to it, that something changed as the priests prayed over it. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that, the main problem, one of the main problems is that Jesus' body is in heaven. It's in one place. It's at the right hand of the Father. It can't be in thousands of different places at any one time. That's one of the problems. But the Reformers saw an even greater problem than that. They saw that it misunderstood grace fundamentally. See, the idea of offering Jesus repeatedly on an altar meant something uh, kind of gave the impression that we were offering something to God in the communion. 
that we were doing something under our own efforts to kind of win God's grace, to, to get closer to Him. And the Reformers said that, that Jesus' sacrifice had already been done. It was once for all. It was sufficient. We didn't need to repeatedly offer sacrifices week by week to earn God's favor because we already had it. We already had his grace towards us. Now, the Church of England, I actually think, gets this very right in their communion service. We're going to be celebrating communion a bit later. And um, one of the things, we, we don't use any words of kind of sacrifice, um, but one of the things we say is we do not come to this table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We come with empty hands. We come with no boasts of our own, but we trust in the all-sufficient death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I asked myself the question as I was looking at this, kind of, what, is, what does that matter to me? What does it matter to you guys? And I guess for lots of us, we're not going to believe things like Jesus' body and uh, blood uh, come to us in the communion, in a literal sense. But I wonder if we've understood that communion is fundamentally not something we do, not something we offer to God. A couple of years ago, um, me and my wife were in a church, um, and we overheard someone speaking after the communion service, and they said that one of their friends would get better now that they've taken communion. And we thought to ourselves, well, that's, this is an evangelical church. It's well taught. That's crazy. And we might not say things quite like that, but we, I wonder if we kind of think that we have to get ourselves in, a, in an experience to, to fully benefit from communion. Now, of course, we want to eat the meal with reverence. We want to reflect on our own lives. But have we understood fundamentally this is a sign and seal of Jesus' sacrifice that is already done for us? It's not something we're bringing to God. It's His gracious gift to you and me. We could say more. Come and ask me afterwards if you'd like to know more. But uh, I want us to press on to think about how it affected the priesthood. You, you can just imagine, can't you, how powerful the priests would have been in those days. They had access to the body and blood of Jesus, so they thought. And you just see this in their role as confessors. See, every year, normally at Lent, people would go to the priest and they would give their confession and the priest would examine them according to the seven deadly sins, and um, they would confess their sins, and depending on what those sins were, the priest would then uh, prescribe some sort of penance, some sort of way of getting, um, dealing with those uh, bad deeds. And again, you can see, can't you, the kind of grace coffee kind of dispenser view, that God is dispensing grace. As I do things, it will, I receive his grace. And again, the problem is with that is that it doesn't understand that Christ has done everything already. It begins to undermine his work. We're not receiving it as a gift. We're, we're doing penance. We're earning God's favor. And I want us to see why that's a problem. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And it's on page 1203. The reason I'm going to the Bible, I just want you to see that these aren't kind of just historical things, they're not kind of things theologians have just come up with, but they're biblical ideas that have been recovered. So verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus 
the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Do you see who the priest is there? It's Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who has gone through the heavens. And because of that, the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the idea of a priest is the idea that we need someone to intercede with us, that we're here, God's there, and we need a priest to go between us, to hear our confession, to, to, to give us uh, assurance. But the, the amazing truth is that Jesus is that for you and me. You don't need a human priest. You've already got one in Jesus Christ. He is going between you and the Father. And so you don't need to go to give your confession to a, a, a priest because you can already go to the throne of grace. You can go to God himself. I mean, that is an incredible thought. But it's a truth that the reformers rediscovered. Again, for us, I, I doubt very much that um, we're kind of getting into that thinking, I haven't been called a priest yet. Um, at least anyone here hasn't called me a priest. No one's called me father. Um, I, I guess that's not us. But I do, do think that that thinking does kind of get into us sometimes. I know I think sometimes that some leaders with particular gifts, with particular expertise, can, can give me a special experience of God, and you're tempted to follow after them on the internet or, or think that only their sermons have a particular power. Or you can think the same about worship leaders, that the particular worship leaders can give you particular experiences. And those things aren't necessarily wrong in, 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 in one way. But in lots of ways, they can lead us to doubt the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has already done. The fact that he is already our priest. He's always, uh, always there intercessing before the Father. Again, ask me about, more about this afterwards. But I want us to think, finally, about how the Reformation affected our view of the Bible. Because as dramatic as those changes were, the communion service, the priesthood, I think there was an even bigger change. And that was a rediscovery of what God's Word was. It wasn't that there wasn't preaching before the Reformation. There was. Uh, people would preach probably most four times a year. If you preached any more than that, you would seem a bit of a radical. But the Reformation discovered... Um, something very dramatic about the Word of God. Here's, um, uh, here's one confession. Um, the Reformation put out lots of confessions about what we believe, and here's one thing they said here. They said, Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. It's incredible, isn't it, to think that this word, as it's proclaimed in a right way, is the very words of God, the very words from your Creator. And that blew people away. Uh, in 1540 in England, uh, Bibles were placed in churches for the very first time. I mean, it's almost unthinkable to think that people didn't have access to this, but a Bible was placed in the churches in 1514. Because they believed this, that God was speaking to his church in Scripture. I don't know about you, I, I wonder if it's kind of easy to look at the medieval church and, and almost just sort of laugh at it a bit and just think it's a bit superstitious. Um, people were a bit naive, believing in 
those sort of things. But the more I looked at the church in, before the Reformation, the more I thought, actually, they're fulfilling a felt need. Because people do want to encounter God. People do want the assurance that everything is going to be all right on Judgment Day. People do want the comfort of someone saying, it's okay, you're right before the Father. But the thing is, they were looking for those things in the wrong place. They were looking for assurance in the shaky ground of our obedience. They were looking for comfort in the terrifying service of the communion. They were looking for comfort and grace in the finite prayers of a human priest. But the reformers saw something amazing. They saw that in Jesus Christ we have those things already. And that as we hear his words, as we hear this message of the finished work of Jesus Christ, then this word increases our assurance, it comforts us, and it gives us hope for the future. See, I wonder if we got the reformers back today and we put them up the front and we said, what's the biggest thing you did? What's the, your biggest legacy? I think it will be this, that they put the Bible in the hands of you and me and that we saw this wonderful message of Jesus Christ dying and being raised for our forgiveness and salvation. Finally, I want us to think um, about the implications today very briefly. Um, this is a picture from Oxford. It's uh, on Broad Street. You may have seen it. Um, obviously not that far from here. And you'll see on the street that they've tarmacked over almost the whole road, but they've left this little square uh, untouched. And you'll see on the square it's got a little cross on it. Um, and that is the point where three of the big um, names in the Reformation, Latimer, uh, Ridley, and Cramner, were burnt at the stake for what they believed. And, and as I look at that, and I've stood on it, and some of you may have done as well, I ask myself the question, have I understood how significant this truth about the finished work of Jesus is? It's not a light truth. It's not something that we just quibble over, but it's something that those guys thought was worth dying for. And I ask myself the question, have I understood how wonderful Jesus's um, free forgiveness is? Have I understood it? Would I be prepared to die for that truth? See, I think it's difficult kind of knowing how to apply a, a talk like this. Um, as I said at the beginning, it's more towards the kind of lecture end uh, of the scale. And um, initially, I thought to myself, I, I would tell you, you know, go and read all the Reformation history. You know, there's lots of books out there. Get really into it. And, you know, I do want to encourage you to do that. I think there's lots to learn. But more than that, I want us to see how significant this finished work of Jesus is, why it mattered to the reformers, and why it mattered to you and me. Let's pray. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace towards us, that in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, that we have the perfect uh, um, sacrifice for sin, that we can have assurance of our forgiveness and eternal life with you, 
And we pray, Father, that you would give us a deeper understanding of that by your Spirit in our hearts. Please help us to cherish it. Please help us to delight in it. And please help us to be assured in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.